Drumming. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is Noah Levy. Noah is an in-demand drummer that lives in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area of Minnesota. He has toured and recorded with a long list of international artists, including Five for Fighting, The Honey Dogs, Peter Frampton, Nelson, The Bodines, and Golden Smog. Noah spends a lot of his time these days as a session player working in studios around town, as well as his own studio. He currently plays with Brian Setzer and his Rockabilly Riot and Orchestra. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I do here at the podcast, you can become a Patreon member. Find us at patreon.com slash working drummer. Any donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content that's provided by our former guests. This content covers a variety of topics, but it's all educational and applicable to the working professional. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can find links to both of these things on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. And while you're there, you can find out more about this episode and the over 300 episodes that we've done over the years. And no matter what your platform of choice is for listening to podcasts, giving us a like, a rating, and review always helps us grow. So I want to do a big shout out to our friend and supporter of the podcast, Jimmy Allison, for introducing me to Noah and you know, kind of helping me to construct this interview with some, some great ideas. So such a big thanks to Jimmy for that. Uh, talking to Noah, he, he's, he's doing things at a level that I think that a lot of us are trying to attain. Uh, we're looking to balance our life between family and doing sessions and doing some touring and doing some fun things locally and just kind of doing it all. I mean, it is the epitome of the working drummer. It was really fun and inspiring to talk to Noah. I hope you get a lot out of it and enjoy this conversation with Noah Levy. About three years ago, we bought this house, and it had this outbuilding above the garage. And I thought, great, you know, it's it's a really cool spot. Um, there's the garage below, and there was a staircase going up, and it was a flat roof. And I thought, wow, the ceiling is not high enough for drums. You need a tall ceiling. Yeah. So I thought, great, we'll blow the, the roof out and, and pitch it. And everybody who came to look at it said, this place is janky. You got to tear it down. <laughs> So I was looking for people to, to build. It, was, it took a long time, and I finally found somebody to agree to build it. And it was, um, I just needed a tall peak, and I had to get an architect to get it to the inch um, for the city ordinance. Oh, cool. For my garage. Yeah. So we tore it down to the foundation, and a lot of it was, I, I didn't do any design. Uh, you know, I got... Uh, it's it's 22 by 22 so it's a square room which is what you don't want right 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 
but um, um, I, I made some corners. I did some things. I'm still working on on sound design and and things like that, and you know, cutting down on some bass traps and all of that. Um, but it took a while to build because we did it on the cheap, and I found somebody that would work nights and weekends. But the electrical went in the week of quarantine. Mm, perfect. The timing couldn't have been better. So I got right to doing remote sessions for people almost right away. Okay. During lockdown. So, so I mean, did you know a lot about sound treatment? Do you, or how are you? I mean, sound treatment, sorry, not design. <laughs> Okay, as far as the the work that you're doing now to change the room, to tune the room, to get it to where you want it to be, um, no, I'm actually I have somebody coming in this week. Um, interesting. I, I put stuff up just kind of willy nilly. Frankly, yeah, I knew I wanted a wooden room, um, and it sounded good right away. But there are just little tweaks I want to make. There's like a a frequency in the toms that I'd like to not have to. EQ as much out of it and you know I think we all deal with that as drummers is getting to know your room and how the drums react to it yeah yeah and for how sure. you EQ and um but yeah somebody's coming in this week they're gonna shoot the room and um I know we're gonna need to put a few bass traps in and and other things so I get the impression from listening to some interviews you've done before that you have a lot of experience playing in the studio but for a lot of us, we didn't stand behind the engineer and say, what's that? Why are you doing that? Why? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, think about all the years we've spent in studios. Yeah. And um, all it took was a little curiosity. Um, but, you know, that's not to say that I'm not loving the process right now. It just would have been nice to, to have that head start. And it's also making it richer as an experience. When I go in... And I'm understanding what the microphones are doing, what compression's doing, what EQ's doing, all these things. Um, I, I, I get to geek out on that stuff when I go to sessions as well as the sounds I'm making and the performance. And um, it just makes it that much richer for me now, I'd say. You say your son is working in there as well. What is he doing? Does he play? Does he, is he engineering? What's he doing? He's, he's kind of a freak. Um, he plays everything. Oh, he's one of those a, guys, yeah. Yeah, he's um plays guitar, bass, drums. And uh when he was really young, he took an Ableton class. And that just kind of opened the doors. They brought him back to kind of be a a counselor at this summer camp with these other kids because he picked it up so quickly. Yeah. And they thought, "Oh, be good for another kid to help teach." They'll, they'll think it's attainable, you know? Yeah. And through that, um, he picked up Pro Tools and and Logic. He's just so fast as an engineer. And I think he spends all of his time, you know, looking at YouTube tutorials. And, yeah. And, you know, the information you have at your fingertips right now is just astounding. I'm guessing you learn a lot from him. I learn a ton, <laughs> uh, you know, and today he helped me set up this whole loop back process yeah. for the microphone. For me, it's, you know, just turn on zoom and go. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. And he's also a really quick editor. Um, he's got perfect pitch so he can ride, you know, he can do Melodyne, you know, 
crazy fast. Is there something about having a home studio that has been an epiphany for you in the way that you hear your playing, in the way now that you are listening to your playback, you by yourself in the room, say you have a client that's sending you a track, it's just you and yourself in the studio recording, doing how many whatever takes or whatever, and then listening back to the performance and then saying, interesting, I I never knew that this snare sounded quite this way, or I swung the hi-hat this way. Was there, was there something that you've discovered at this I point? I would say that every day I'm discovering things. Um, and, and that's no exaggeration. Um, there, you know, there are certain things in my playing um, that, that I understood before when, when I would go into sessions with other people, like, oh, I've got to stop opening the hat on you know on every bar you know or there's like little cliches that you get stuck on that i understood but now yes um if i tune the snare this way it's going to react this way or um um what was happening for me was i was recording in a vacuum it was just isaac and i people would send me tracks and i'm sending them raw tracks i'm not i'm not doing anything to it because they're going to want to manipulate it in any way. Um, So it's taken me a long time to tune my ears. And and I feel like I'm just, after a couple years, my ears are starting to notice things in frequencies, in tunings, in um, kind of the finer points that weren't there right away. When, When people say, oh, listen to what this plugin does. Right. And unless it's a radical thing, you go, I don't really hear it. But over time, you start to hear it more and more. And I, I would say that my ears are developing very fast. And every day there's some new wrinkle that you'll find and you'll go, oh, if I move the mic here or, you know, there's a million variables with drums and phasing issues and, and all these things. And now my ears are starting to hear it. Um, after this, all this time. That's amazing. I love that because there are so many times that I'm watching something on YouTube and say, okay, here's with the plug-in on and here's with it off. And I'm sitting there with headphones on going, what the fuck is the difference? I'm not here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. And and there's still, uh, I feel like every day there's a little thing that I'll, I'll notice. Uh, um, but... <laughs> It's a lifetime of, of, of learning this stuff. All these people we've been around have gotten their 10,000 hours in decades ago. Right. And, and I want it now. I, you know, <laughs> I, want to, I want this process. I want to be you know, an amazing engineer, but that's, that's time. And these people were doing 12-hour, 18-hour days in the studio as assistants and, and developing their ears that way. And I'm trying to speed the process up as fast as I can. I think we can get there. Uh, it's interesting because I, I, I think a lot of us are in, like you, where we've spent the time in the studio. We've been on the other side. We kind of know, but and maybe we were interested from time to time, but in essence, we weren't. I, 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 there's times when somebody says, oh man, the, the floor tom has a weird ring to it. 
would mm-hmm. you just and you start kind of turning lugs and and hitting it and they're like oh that's it and you're like i don't know what i did but it works and we're moving on right and so they know what they know whatever you did is working and so now that we're in our space by ourselves we're being we're playing all these roles and and yes. trying to figure figure it out and and the challenge is that and this is what's going to lead me to the other thing I wanted to ask you about is the cost and time factor because when you get hired for a session you're getting hired to come in and play drums learn if, if you know learn the song on the fly lay it down and as as quickly as you can and at the and when they say good we're done with the 5 6 7 8 songs that you did that day you go home right and it in the home studio obviously we're listening to the songs we're build we're importing the track we're building the session i like to use markers and logic helps me kind of navigate around uh the song uh so mm-hmm. that takes time there's uh maybe writing a chart if they didn't or learning the song which you do in the studio that's cool tracking it and then making sure that the tones are right microphone mm-hmm. placement you're playing so many different roles that what you would charge for one song say if you're doing if you're charging per song as opposed to per session or a block of time that structure has to accommodate the time that it takes to be drummer and engineer yeah and 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 sometimes producer yeah that's a i will admit that i it really started to wear on me um not having the input right away um i did not like i i didn't mind all this other stuff it was great i was learning it it was exciting and i was getting more adept at it on on a daily basis um the only my only complaint was well actually two complaints one i like having people there to perform with and we're we're reading off each other you know but that's just the nature of things um you know people are sending you their tracks yeah. with a click i get it um the other thing was sending songs to people for revisions yeah um i you know i'd rather have somebody say hey why don't you try a different kick pattern on the second verse or, 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 you know, um, I need more of this, more of that. Instead you send them the track and they're out on a hike or something and you got to wait a couple hours to, to make the revision. You know, uh, the thing that I've been thinking about lately is when I go into a session with other people and, and they say, you know, play for a bit, let's tweak some stuff and they're getting their levels and they're saying, yeah, I'm hearing a weird, uh, note out of that floor time can you can you tweak it um i'm trying to be more patient and and kind of a little harder on myself like okay hit your drums record them spend some time really getting it right like you would on a session with somebody else and and throw up a bunch of different snares and you know mess with the tuning but you know sometimes you just have that thing like okay now the room's tied together i can feel it out of the kit I'm going to perform accordingly. Um, been working on that a lot. If you have like four songs to track for a client and you do one song and you send off 
a rough mix for them to hear. And then you're moving on to the next song. Say it requires a different ride cymbal, a different snare drum. And then you're on the fourth song. You still haven't heard from the client about the first song. Are there ways that you're able to get back to that? Say, you know, I love everything. Are you doing any auto punching with tracks? If somebody says, I just, could you just like do just straight kick drum on, you know, something that really makes sense to do an auto punch to fix that song and get it to go as yeah. opposed to a whole performance? Yeah, I mean, I I do the auto punching, um, and I've I've got a rig now where, you know, as I've got a computer next to me now. I didn't have one for the longest time, mm-hmm. and I was using an iPad, and um, it's it's much easier for me to punch and and do stuff on the fly. It's amazing how long you can deal with like running across the room <laughs> to hit the space bar. Um. But yeah, I'll 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 do that stuff. That's no problem. Um but recalling things eh, it's it's pretty basic. I don't know. Uh I haven't had anybody complain yet about, "Hey, you got to that song, you did four tracks and the kick drum sound was completely different or yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. the overheads are in the wrong place." Yeah. And it was really obvious. I haven't had that problem yet. But. Okay, I, I I'm I'm using Universal Audio, so I'm using their console, and mm-hmm. so every and because it's just a plug-in, I, I assign every song to that console setting. So when if they if I pull up a song that I did two days ago, it, all the settings are the same, mm-hmm. and then I make notes in the side for use this snare drum had big fat snare drum donut on it, and you know, this, whatever, any changes, kind of make those notes and kind of set that snare drum aside and not use it again until I know that song is good to go and out the door. Yeah. Um, it's a good excuse to have like 20 snare drums. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Man, it's, you know, the snare drums and cymbals are so, you know, they're, they change most of it. You can use, I can use the same kick drum all day, know. you know, <laughs> unless it's, unless it's, uh, you know, a big, huge, wide open 24, 26. Yeah, know? yeah. But I, I can get by on a 22 or a 20 all day. The only thing I notice that I really have to be c- careful about is if I'm doing a song where I'm playing brushes. Um, and I'm not doing a lot of jazz, but I'm doing, like if it's Americana stuff and I'm playing, or country-ish or, you know, that kind of thing, or playing lighter then I have yeah. to set my parameters in such a way that it's picking that up where it's it's not going to fit for a snare. Especially if you're in the studio and you say, uh, you know, I'm going to st- I'm going to do this thing with brushes, and then they say, let's do this song again. But could you switch to sticks? And then you always know, hey, engineer, heads up, my whole gain structure just changed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just to change that. Well, and also doing a brush take. Um, Maybe you just had a cup of coffee and you're hitting a little harder. Yeah. Um, or, you know, or you've been recording all day and you, your sense of, of touch changes throughout the day. Maybe your ears are tired or you're getting more relaxed or whatever. Um, yeah, brushes are very tricky that way. Um, we, we all like to think our technique is spot on, <laughs> but when, when you gain it up that much, oh. um, you're, you're hearing a lot. It's very revealing. Very revealing. Yeah. I, I think that's what inspired me to ask you that question is, was there anything that you discovered about your own playing 
in this process because you're listening with headphones by your, you know, mostly by yourself to your performance. Yeah, I I would say uh, as time, as the years go on, I get quieter and quieter in the studio generally, especially cymbals. You know, you know, you don't want to be smacking the cymbals. Nobody ever says, I need more hi-hat, you know? (laughs) Uh, More China. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) I have a bass player friend that back in the day when everybody's using him, he used to come up and undo, he'd he'd take the thing up and put it down on the ground and start playing. (laughs) And you'd take the sixth string off his bass. Right. You don't need that. (laughs) Fair enough, yeah. Fair enough. Uh, has there been a, be- a piece of gear in your studio that's been a game changer? Um, I just got a plug-in that has changed everything okay. for me. Um, it's it's called a Radix. Um, I forget what you would call it, but it basically changes um, your phase on all of the drums. So you can get your drums in perfect phase. Oh, I have to have this. It's amazing um i forget what it's called radix makes it i forget what it's called radix but it is so cool you you get one point um you start on the overhead left and you start going out from the drums from there and you get it in relation to that overhead right and there's kind of a chain of things and then you get down to the kick drum and your inner kick drum and your outer kick drum you see if they're in phase together because they're always out (laughs) yeah Top snare, bottom snare, room mics, all of it. And man, it is a great place to start. Once you get that worked out, um, it's a it's been a really helpful tool for me. My drum sound changed a lot. R A dot sorry, R A D I X. Yeah. Okay. I'm pretty sure. And that is yeah. the company that makes this specific plug. Yeah. Okay. You know? And then, and then probably from there. Interesting. That is is always a challenge. And even though I've moved into a bigger room, I'm still having phase issues from time to time. Uh, yeah, and it's just kind of a housekeeping thing. Once you get done with your take, you do this for about five minutes, and um, you know, there's the, obviously moving mics the old-fashioned way is. Mm-hmm. But this, I just find this very simple. And it makes a massive difference. Massive difference for so, low end and obvious phase issue stuff. So. Exactly. I I think that is the thing that I want to ask you about is because of the time that it takes, the extra time that it takes for us to create a product, to create a recording. When you're doing it on your own, compared to when you're in the studio, time is of the essence. And sure. when we find a workflow that works. Uh, that gets us there faster, that we can concentrate on performance, then at the end of the day, you can do more tracks. The end of the week, you could do more tracks. And at the end of the year, you're making hopefully what you would make if you were going to a studio every day. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my the, the variable for me was the time that people would get back to me. Yeah. Um, and... These days, actually, I'm finding that with with COVID kind of um, coming and going, I'm doing I'm doing a lot of sessions where people come in and they can tell me in real time, or I'm spending a lot of time at other studios again, and not so much. I'm not doing the thing where people are sending me tracks as much as I used to. 
Interesting. They, they, they can show up unless they're from out of town. You know, there's a lot of that. Also, another thing that I've been using is um, something called audio movers hmm. where it's a plug-in and uh, you're basically, you can do a Zoom call and you can send your whole session and they see it in real time. There's a slight delay. Yeah. But um, that I like a lot because people can tell you in the moment what they want. And it's super high quality audio. That's amazing. To send to them. And, and they'll see my logic session as everything's going on. And it's pretty cool. Yeah. 21st century shit right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we need it. I mean, if we can't play in real time together. Yeah. Yeah. During the pandemic, when you first got started, was there anything that you did to get the work started, to get the sessions to come to your studio? You know, I just kind of put the word out. I haven't even, I haven't been uh, terribly diligent in trying to drum up more work elsewhere because I was getting, I was getting all the work I could handle through people I knew. Um, I was looking at that. What's the one? Um, Air gigs. Yeah. I was going to do that. And uh, the thing that's keeping me from doing is I didn't want to publish my rates, my fees. Mm. I didn't want to be, because once anybody can look that up, you know, when you're doing sessions, you negotiate things. And mm-hmm. and I didn't want to be painted into a corner doing that. Interesting, so, yeah. Um. But yeah, it's been it's been word of mouth and and friends and just kind of getting it out there a little bit that hey, here I am. Right. With with your with your history, I mean, I'm sure it's you're not starting from scratch here with the community. No, but what I was starting from scratch with um was my my skills as an engineer. And um and I was actually, I was charging accordingly. I was, I was very cheap at first because, look, I'm not going to charge you my full rate mm-hmm. if I don't feel like I'm giving you the best product I can. Yeah. And I was honest. I was never selling people, you know, a bill of goods. Um, but the engineer I am now compared to then, it's night and day. And yes. I'm still, I mean, I'm, you know, it's a lifetime of learning. I'm not anywhere near where I want to be yet. But it's much better. But still, that that is a, an ongoing discussion. You know, mm-hmm. if we're consummate students and we're trying to learn and grow all the time as musicians alone, mm-hmm. uh, it's like there is a process. That it's it's a study, and yet you have to earn a living, and you right. have to respect yourself, and you yeah. have to create a pricing and pay environment that is beneficial to the whole community and set a standard there's so many people and i see this on air gigs where you see somebody hey i'll do a drum track for 25 bucks and you're just like man just stop that kills everybody that's like the bands that play for free in the club yeah and uh yeah it kills everybody yeah yeah Yeah, there's that there's that uh you know i i I was just uh, going cheaper than than I would um, normally, but that was just to get my foot in the door. And also, i i didn't want to I didn't want to play games with other people's money, you know. Um, you know, I I, uh, 
I'd prefer to be honest about my abilities. You know, I'm confident in my playing, you know, <laughs> but, you know, I spent time when I was younger in my early 20s. I decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take this very seriously. I came up, you know, playing punk rock and, you know, garage bands and all that. And, and I decided I wanted to kind of refine things a little bit and, uh, you know, work on the choppy stuff, but I'm, I've never been really interested in, in kind of chopsy music. Um, there's a place for it, whatever. Uh, but I would spend hours just playing two and four with the click track and, um, you know, a friend of mine was joking. He came in a rehearsal hall and he could hear me in this room just, you know, for hours. And just kind of the zen of it, um, I, I, I was just always satisfied doing it. I don't know. I, I just, I love sitting in it. Um, but I do find that when I am practicing more kind of chops, oriented things my two and four is a little crisper sometimes you know um my my intuition can be a little higher but um the more time i spend practicing that stuff um yeah the syllables stand out a little more i would say yeah i'm not a chopsy player at all and and it kind of opens up that that concept of oh i'm uh, i'm just a pocket player you know that that's kind of uh, this this uh, there's an underlying message there that i i can't play the fancy stuff and it's like (laughs) really it's like i i can't but also what has gotten me work uh has been uh simple but there is something beyond that. There's a confidence in the simplicity. There's a pocket in the two and four. I want to ask you about the Bodines. Uh, we had Kenny Arnoff on uh, yeah. in January. Mentioned a story about the sound checking and playing just, you know, two and four on the snare, one and three on the kick and hi-hat, and, but doing it the way Kenny does it. Right. And um, the drummer for um, Los Lobos was there listening to him and just was was fascinated with his pocket mm-hmm. and, and, and complimented him on it. He recognized how important that was. He recognized that early in Kenny's life, when he was working with Mellencamp, that he needed to fall in love with that type of playing. He needed to fall in love with Charlie Watts. Okay. Um, because that's what was going to get him work to go to transition from a young player that studied classical that was really into jazz and fusion yeah. to becoming the rock drummer that we know and love today yeah well and he plays like he's in love with it i mean that's that's a that's a great way to look at it um yeah. you know i never understand when people say oh i get bored playing that kind of stuff yeah I get bored with this like okay, are you bored with the song? The only time I've ever been bored was, I love this kind of music, but play. I was playing Zydeco, where it was one chord all the way through. My ears didn't have anywhere to go. And I loved the, I loved the music, but a full night of it made me crazy. Um, <laughs> but when people say that, it's like, motherfucker, play the song. You know, uh, I, I don't know. I never understood how people got bored, but... Um, I did, uh, Kenny's a funny story. We did a dual drummer thing with the Bodines. Yes. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 
I'm a child of the eighties. You know, I grew up listening to him and copping fills from him. And, um, he was a, he was a really sweet guy, but, uh, we, one person would be on the click and the other one would be kind of more like the percussion and we would trade off and man, that guy's, I thought I was loud. He was, he's a freight train and it was really exciting for me. And he was, he was very gracious, you know? And that was with the Bodines. How long were you with them? I was with them for about six years. And, uh, I actually came in right after Kenny was with them. So they wanted me to hit hard, hard and just kind of never let up. And the, the learning curve that was different for me. It took me a couple months to really feel like it was under me. I wanted to ask you about some of the bands that you've worked with. Um, sure. I did want to ask about the Honey Dogs, mm-hmm. which was the band you were in with your brother yeah. uh, for many years. It was an original thing. How old were you when you, when you started with that? I was about 19 when I started with that. Um, and Adam and I had played in a lot of different incarnations. Um, and he was the primary songwriter. And that was my whole being for about 10 years. Um, I put everything into that and was really proud of the work we did and spent all that time in a van trying to, trying to make it go, you know? And, uh, I just finally hit my wall. It's tough because, you know, we, we, we talk what we were talking about before with running your own home studio, uh, there's a lot of hats to wear when you're in a band and you're a member of a band, especially a band that's growing. And I mean, drumming is just a small percentage of what you do. Yeah. And, and it was exhausting. We, we went through the whole major label. We, we signed to Mercury and that didn't happen. Um, and that was very hard on me. It was, you know, you put all your hopes and your aspirations into it and Ever since I quit that band, I've never been happier playing music. <laughs> I was, I'm very proud of the music we made, but now I'm a musician. Now I'm not worried about how many people are coming tonight. I don't, I don't care how many shirts we sold. I don't, you know, um, it's been very liberating for me. This podcast, the you know, working drummer, is inspired by mostly. Uh, the idea of musicians playing the role of hired gun. Right. And how you navigate all these different things that go into staying busy as a full-time musician, not necessarily a member of a band. Mm -hmm. Um, But there has to be something that you've learned that was unique to that experience that you carry with you when you're working with Brian Setzer or the Bodines or some of these other groups that you understand at a deeper level than maybe somebody that's been a hired gun their whole life. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, I talked to my son about this, um, join a band. Um, I don't even know how to put it into words, but you know, um, some of these people, they've never sequenced a record. They've never had to think about like, um, you know, uh, very basic things that go into being, um, uh, making decisions about your future, um, fleshing songs out in a room. Um, yeah, it's, I, I couldn't imagine if I did this without ever having had that experience. 
of of being a part of a gang and uh it's it's so valuable so valuable and i wonder if you bring that sensibility to the tracking room as well absolutely um but you know everybody says this play what the song needs you know but it's a cliche (laughs) for a reason yeah it's uh you know it ain't about me (laughs) it you know it's 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 what does the song need and um once in a while I'll hear a song and go, man, that drummer is really imposing their will there, aren't they? They're, you know, like, ooh, you're really, uh, you know, and it has nothing to do with the song. And it, it uh, you know, most people would tell them, stop. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you tell yourself that. Um, but yeah, it's uh, band people, you know, Ringo, Charlie Watts. No doubt. They're band people. Yeah, yeah. How long did it take you before you made that transition from leaving that band to working full-time with other people? You know, it kind of coincided with me having my first child. Um, I would do... I was playing with other... I had this band, Golden Smog, which was a bunch of other band people. And I toured with them for a record, did a record with them. And I was touring with this guy, Mason Jennings during the downtime with the honey dogs. And when my son was born, I decided I really need to actually make more money. I need to, uh, really get serious about this. And I started playing with this band five for fighting. Yeah. When he was very young. And, uh, and then work just started coming from there. Uh, you know, I'm not, this town is, the level of talent in this town is unbelievable. You'd be shocked. Uh, there's people just coming out of the woodwork here. Just amazing players. Um, but it, it wasn't really an industry town. So it was kind of fluky that I was getting these tours with, with people. Um, you know, I wasn't in LA or Nashville or New York, you know. Um, but every year or two something else would come down the line and kept me busy. So what is it about Minneapolis, St. Paul? I mean, there's so much talent that's coming out of this place. We've had some great drummers on the podcast. Patar Yannick. Oh yeah, I know Patar. Uh Steve Gould. Oh yeah, yep, I know him too. Yeah, um, small town. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> those guys are great drummers. They're yeah, they're exquisite drummers. Um, yeah, there's. I, I don't know. I, I some people say it's the cold weather. Some people say, uh, I don't know. It's just uh, a lot of immensely creative people, and I think there was a standard set by Prince. Um, he looms so large. And then there's the replacements where, you know, they were kind of our stones. Yeah. You know? Um, um, and I can't, uh, overestimate how, how big an impact they had on uh, growing up here in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, all shook down was one of my records that got yeah. me through college. It seemed like every kid had a band. <laughs> growing up here in the the 80s and 90s it was everybody had a band 
And it's when I go to Austin, Texas, it's kind of the same way where I feel like everybody's kind of looking out for each other too. It's it's a very supportive scene. Um, yeah, but the players here are unbelievable. I'm sure it snowballs. I, I'm sure just one thing feeds into another. Yeah, and you have one generation. So your brother is what, like eight years older than you? Yeah, he's eight years older, and he was he was kind of my entree into music. I, we didn't come from a musical family, and and he's an amazing musician. He just always knew how to play. Was that? I assume that was your introduction at an early age. But how did how did drums come into to the to the to to that? <laughs> I know exactly how it happened. Um, <laughs> he had this cardboard Beatles band. You know, he made all the instruments out of cardboard, and he made this Ludwig kick drum with two toms off the top of it. You know, <laughs> two dimensional, and he put markers in my hands and a set of cans, so I looked like I was in the studio. <laughs> so he'd say, "Keep beat, keep the beat," and. I was able to do it right away. So that's amazing. That's, that's, that's amazing. amazing. And you, you still have the cardboard somewhere in the studio and play it. I don't. I don't. God, that'd, that'd that be was amazing. gone. We probably tore it up right away. <laughs> You're rushing, and he tore it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> First of many arguments. <laughs> Are you guys working together again? Yeah. He, in fact, he was in the studio last week. Um, uh. I adore him. The problem with being in a band with your brother, though, is uh, the arguments come to the surface right away. Yeah. I think any any brother band will tell you that. And he's my best friend. I absolutely love him. Um, but for years, we could only play covers <laughs> and not fight, you know? Yeah. Uh, but he's been coming in. Um, he's always got a million projects going. He's a great songwriter, amazing musician. And last week he's like, I got another song. So we're kind of, we've been doing a record a la carte here for about a year. <laughs> so <laughs> It is interesting when you're really close to the person that you're working with, especially original music. Everything was an argument. And uh, we finally got to the point where he said, and I'll give him credit for this. It sounds really harsh, but he's like, look, I don't want your input anymore. And, and that was like, what? You know, I was already out. I was already kind of, but he's like, I don't want to fight about it anymore. I'm writing the songs. And um, that was a, oh, man, I'd never, you're never going to hear that from anybody. You know, like that was an intense thing to hear. Um, but you know what? He was right. He needed the record we made after I left the band was the best record. I was just more of a hired gun for that record. And I felt like it had the the strongest vision, um, and he was just kind of unfettered. He didn't have people tell him what if, what if we did this, what if we did that. It was just focused and his idea. I want to talk about Brian Setzer maybe a little bit separately, but uh, sure. Five for Fighting, Golden Smog, Bodine's uh, Frampton, yeah, Tift Merritt. Yeah, um, some of these things. Can you maybe speak to one or or a handful of these, any of these groups, of of something that they needed from you? You know the um, the five for fighting gig um, that felt like a really natural fit for me. 
uh, I went out and auditioned. I met the bass player on a session out in Los Angeles. And he said, well, come on out and, and audition for the band. And he, his feel and my feel, I, um, it just made sense. And on the recordings, it was, I think it was Sean Pelton and um, Brian McLeod, kind of more loosey-goosey, like, uh, not, I don't know if loosey-goosey is the term, but um, groovy. Um, it breathes. It breathes. And, and it really, that was a very natural fit for me. Mm-hmm. And I loved playing with Kurt, the bass player. I'd go for fills, and he had a way of stepping out during the fills where I could do my thing, and he's just a very intuitive player. Really liked playing with him. Golden Smog was just kind of a put-together-quickly thing. Um, you know, we made this record in three days, uh, and yeah, it was very spur of the moment. In fact, they were writing in the studio. from what i understand that band was kind of was essential in maybe opening your world up a little bit kind of some street cred was added to your resume yeah that was the first record i did where yeah it was uh jeff tweedy from wilco and um gary luris from um the jayhawks gary and mark from the jayhawks and Dan Murphy from Soul Asylum. So they had all kind of achieved a certain amount of success at that point. And they were just pals that wanted to make a record. So I ran into, it was the day I got fired from another gig. <laughs> swear to God. <laughs> I overslept. Like my alarm didn't go off. I missed the gig. The sound guy was a drummer. Took over. <laughs> <laughs> so that door closed that morning, you know. Yeah. And well... I can go to that wedding I couldn't make. So I'm at the wedding and I run into my friend Mark, the bass player. He's like, what are you up to? I said, nothing. He's like, we're looking for a drummer. So <laughs> I ended up getting a gig that day. Nice. Um, but after that, yeah, people were like, oh, you know, he's legit. But you're not a better drummer than you were the day before. Um, right. Um, but in in certain people's eyes, like, oh, he can handle, you know, doing television or whatever. I don't know what it is. But. Well, maybe it's just people discovering something more about you that they didn't know. And, True. And, and True. also some of the some of the band members, you know, recognizing that in you and, and you're working with this band. And it's like, that's cool. I mean, just perception becomes reality in some ways. And um yeah, and I think you become more confident in yourself too yeah. as as the days go on. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um what was the Frampton gig like? When did you do that? That one <laughs> that one uh well, that one my buddy Rob was playing keys. Um I got him the five for fighting gig and he got me the audition for Frampton. And I went down, that didn't, the Frampton gig didn't last very long. That was a, that was a lesson. Um, How so? uh, um, I guess, don't plan on anything. Um, I got the gig um, and we rehearsed for a couple weeks, went out, and then the guy that quit wanted the gig back. And the the person, you know, whoever has the gig, um, 
you know, that's powerful. It's, it's never really your gig mm-hmm. <laughs> for a while. Mm-hmm. So uh, he came back and I don't know if he quit or got fired, but I ended up finishing the tour. I got called back to finish the tour off. So um, that was also a lesson in humility. I mean, that was a, a large gig to get. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've all lost gigs before, but it was, you know, sucked and it was uh, uh, a a really valuable lesson in who you are what you can handle um i learned a lot it is interesting because at at some point you got the gig and the guy asked for it back and they're like well okay so uh noah you're out this guy's coming back oh he doesn't want the gig anymore okay noah you can have it after all and so yeah. now you're coming back and you're like, well, yeah, I want to play the gig. I want to do the tour. Obviously you sure. did. But now you're like, so I'm not your first call. I'm your. Yeah. And I've had things come up um, where you know that it's a bit of a fool's errand. Like you're the guy that um, isn't, uh, you know, uh, when you, sometimes you just know that you're going to be filling in for a while. Um, and that's very different than being the guy. Um, and I've learned how to, you know, compartmentalize. But and sometimes I'll see settings where you go, this is never going to work. Um, I'm not the person that you need for the gig. And I'm at a point now where I'll, I'll turn things down if I see that. Because if you see that coming a, a mile away, it is coming. You also can gather when you get into a rehearsal or you get on a gig with somebody and um, if they're gracious, if they're if they're good people to work with, it's it's night and day. Oh, yeah. I don't care. I'll be twentieth call if if I enjoy playing with them. Yeah. Um, but if they treat you less than, then I won't go back. Yeah, yeah. There's some people I work with that I I will do anything for if I get an opportunity to work with. It's just it's a, it's a joy. Um, yeah. And it's not. And the music is almost secondary. Um, you know, because especially if there's travel involved, if there's all that miserable stuff that's involved, you really want to work with good people. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe it's aging, but, uh, you know, there's, there's some people play with joy and some people play with anger and I don't think there's anything in between. Hmm. I really don't. And, um, some people, they hit a stage and they're just fucking tense. They, what, what what leads to that? What what? Why do you? Why are people doing that? I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't. Um, you know, I'll admit that. You know, once in a while, if I'm on a a bad gig, I fight it. Mm-hmm. I fight. You know, being annoyed by certain things. Or, but you know what? We're playing music. Yeah. Right. What, what, what do we have to be mad about right now? If things aren't going right, let's talk about it later and we'll fix it. <laughs> We're professionals. Right. You know, uh, but some people, when they hit the stage, they're just, I don't know if it's insecurity. If it, I also think I attribute part of it to adrenaline. Like what is like the reptilian part of your brain doing right now? Interesting. How are you, how do you react to that stress? Yeah. I also wonder about artists who's, you know, over the arc of their career, maybe they were huge at one time and, and you're on tour with them and 
they they aren't getting the reception they did 20 years ago uh yeah (laughs) (laughs) yes yes and yes um yeah i've played with people in the past not my current boss thankfully is not like that yeah but um yeah i i played with somebody that was very large at one point and uh the come down was hard yeah and yet this is they still have to play this they have to honor their contracts to earn a living yeah. and and whatever and they're like man i shouldn't be here and this blah 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 whatever i guess but you know in the same respect um i've also come across people that have had large success and they are so gracious yeah to the audience to the people that come to them um i no excuse no excuse there's so many examples of of people that just find joy in in just the fact that they are still able to perform they still have their fans they still are able to play the music you know and do this for a living um yeah yeah it's it, it it's definitely out there well let's talk about your current boss who brings a lot of joy brian yeah Setzer. i I yeah Brian Setzer I I love playing with him he's uh, he's uh, talk about somebody that um, is gracious and sets you up to succeed I met him on a session and right away he put me at ease um, I feel like he got a good performance out of me right away because um, he just immediately looked me in the eye and. Uh, all right, let's go for it, you know? And yeah. and from that moment on, he's always been like that. Like, great, let's go. You know, he's he's just, he's very in the moment and I, I really like him a lot. How how long have you been working with him? Wow. Uh, I recorded with him, my son's 19 now and it was, it was parent-teacher conferences I got a call. <laughs> <laughs> in so he was in first grade. So I don't know, twelve years. Okay. Um and so I did that record for him. It was just gonna be demos and they ended up using it for the records. Uh we just kind of hit it off right away. And about a year later he called for a tour. Nice. And and I was doing just the the four piece rockabilly band with him. Mm-hmm. And they had with the big band he had gone through you know a handful of drummers for that and i got the call for that maybe four years later okay so what i understand is 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 you weren't reading a lot of music at the time or you weren't reading at all what what was that what's the details behind that yeah so i he asked me when it my first take actually he runs out into the control room he's like or into the live room he says Noah, where you been all my life? Do you read? <laughs> and I said, N- no, but I can, you know, you know, yeah. he's like, oh, cool. All right. All right. But the, up until me, um, the big band was a reading gig. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't like he was putting charts out in front of everybody every night. I had memorized the show. Um, and uh, he, he and I had a good relationship. We liked each other and I, we grooved well together. And, um, 
Yeah, the the reading, I haven't needed it for that gig, but I do have to do a lot of homework. Okay. Yeah. One of the things that, that our friend Jimmy brought up was, you know, did you go about learning to read? Did you, you know... I, I learned it over the years, but, you know, very slowly. Never And I never had call for it. I was playing in rock bands. I was, uh, it, it, it's one of those things that just atrophied. And then I would learn it every five, ten years. But I wasn't reading charts. And the way my mind works, and uh, it just wasn't anything I needed. So even moving on to Brian's Big Band, you still didn't find you needed it to the degree that I think one would expect. No, I know where the hits are. I know where, you know, I know those songs inside and out. Um, but, you know, a reader could just look at it right away. And But I spend a lot of time before every tour. Um, and, you know, uh, I guess if we were to go in the studio with the big band, that would be a problem. Um, because I'm not, I would have to get the songs beforehand. Whereas, uh, a reader is just like, you know, and you've got horns, you've got everything. I don't want anybody waiting around for me. And, uh, I need, Brian is an artist that you need to watch. Yeah. You don't want your head in the book. And I know in the past he's had, I think he's told drummers before, like, get rid of the book because you're looking at me. So, mm-hmm. You know, especially the drummer and front person, um, you're reading their body language all night. I learned a funny lesson with him. I, I was so militant about, like, I'm going to be in the moment. You know, I'm going to memorize everything. And I don't like to count when I'm playing. I don't want to, I don't want to hear one, two, three, four. You know, that's time away from the music as far as i'm concerned you should just feel it in your bones whatever um we were doing he does the nutcracker suite and i'm playing the glockenspiel and the whole thing wow it's it's a big involved 10 minute song and there's one part in the song where his neck goes up and you're going you're going super fast and there's a solo going on and it stops and then something else happens. But I, you know, I always hear something as a piece of music. I could not tell where the chords were going because he's doing this lightning fast guitar solo. The horns are doing a very involved pattern and I was blowing it every night. And Brian called, he called me into his dressing room. He's like, Hey, no, that, that thing that's at the end of the nutcracker, I hear it. Don't worry about it. But just think it's oompa, oompa, oompa. And it did two things. One was, I hear it. Don't do it again. <laughs> but it was also, relax. You got the yips right now. So I went back and I was like, I'm going to count this thing. <laughs> you know, Just count. Don't be stubborn. And I never made that mistake again. That's really amazing to hear that, and, and it's, it's, an, it's encouraging to hear that from somebody like Brian and said, hey, man, I hear it. Don't worry about it. Just, yeah. As opposed to, man, stop fucking up and just getting mad. And that would have been, I think, at least in the short term, it would have been the opposite effect. Yes. Um, he's one of these people that um, I told him after the first tour, I thanked him. I said, you know, you set me up to succeed. 
And um, you know how it is. Like when you go into a session and the producer, the artist is like, you know when they want you to succeed and you feel it and you play better and you, um, I don't know. I, I'd say that works every time. Man, what a, what a great thing. And, and, and what a, what a lesson to take away from when you're playing the role of band leader or working with maybe a young band or an experienced band to be like, we're here, let's, let's do this. Just elevate everything. That's yep. great. That's awesome. my, the first session I did, my friend John Munson was producing. He was in Semisonic and Trip Shakespeare. Great guy. But he sat us down. I was in high school and he said, I don't want anybody talking shit. When people are in the control room, this is a place of trust. I don't want to hear people laughing at people. I, you know, um, and I've taken that with me through everything. Um, this is a, this is a place of trust. And, you know, if you have a problem, just be direct about it or, but, um, I, especially in studio settings, let's enjoy ourselves and, and let everybody feel good. You know, you remind me of a conversation I had with a Canadian drummer, uh, uh, Chad Melchard, who's, who's been doing really well. And I said, is there something about working in the studio that people would be surprised to hear that you do? And he goes, he mm -hmm. goes, well, one thing that I like to do is, uh, just make sure there's positive energy in the studio. Uh, a lot of times we're working with singer-songwriters. They may be great, but they don't have the studio experience that most of us have in the studio. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, you think about you're working with so many different bands, so many different songwriters, you are spending more time in the studio than they are. And to have this, like, I know what's going on. I know, you know, whatever. And and But always kind of keep that into account that that um, we're here to support them, to, to make sure the energy is good so that we get the best out of them and everybody involved. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, it seems like a basic detail, but it is so important. My friend said to me recently, he's a producer, he said, people are going to remember how they feel Yes. When they were in a studio. Yeah. It's so important, especially, you know, people that have not spent time. It's so important that the artist is comfortable and happy. And damn it, they're spending their money. Yes. They're, so you know, it, this is a big deal. And um, no matter a small session, a big session, um, this is an important thing. And you can never forget that. The opposite is true, too. Uh I needed a player for something, and a friend of mine suggested this player. An amazing, experienced player, works in the studio all the time. Yeah. And I said, yeah, he would be great. But in my experience, he brings the session down if it's not a master session with A players. Oh, yeah. And this is not one of those. And so oh, I yeah. just, I know he's great and he would kill it, but I don't want him in the room. And the, yeah. he, the guy was like, oh. And it's like, no. No performance would trump that. I, I don't yes. care how great of a player you are. Yeah. That won't, that, won't, uh, that won't trump a bad vibe. No. And Nashville isn't unique to the level of, uh, the, to the number of great players. 
Minneapolis has that. Chicago has that. And so many, Atlanta, yeah. so many places around the country and around the world have the players that, I'm sorry, you just can't be an asshole and get away with it. You have to bring yeah. something to the table that uh, is is more than just your ability because, again, like you say, the person is paying for this. They they are uh, – I just love that. Like how do you make them feel at the end of the day, at the end of the gig, at the end of the session? Yeah, and uh, we've all been on sessions where somebody goes, yeah, you got what you need. Ugh. And, you know, everything just shuts down and, uh, you know – the alpha male just spoke, you know? Oh, oh, good. We know who wears the pants here. Like, fuck off. Seriously. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, um, yeah, that's that's hard. Uh, I, luckily, I don't see that that often. And I don't end up working with people like that ever again. Yep, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I, again, I think it just, it comes with time and it comes with age. It's just like, man, I just, I don't have, this is supposed to be fun. yeah. Yeah, we get to play music. I know. <laughs> We're not putting up drywall. Come on, people. Last question I have for you is uh, the band Zeppo. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, I'm an enormous John Bonham fan. Um, and I've got these pals that um, I, my, my buddy John Eller is an exquisite singer. He he kind of sounds like a Rod Stewart, and uh, he can do an amazing Robert Plant. Yeah, and and he plays everything, and and it was just we got together for laughs, and it still is. But man, that stuff is so hard. We have to relearn it every time we play. How often do you guys play? Oh, you know, every couple months. Okay, and and you want to do it well, but you know, we're just playing covers. It's it is what it is, but. Um, we'd like to do it right. Sure. And if if I do say so, it's pretty killer. Oh, it My sounds buddy, great. Paul Bobbitt's playing bass. Yeah, I saw some stuff, and it, it 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 sounds it sounds great. But one one thing that's kind of unique about it is that it's not so much like a Zeppelin tribute band in the way that most of us think of it as, where no. you're wearing a bolo hat and you know, <laughs> right. yeah. yeah, that stuff drives me nuts. Uh, not to not to knock on anybody's gig. A gig's a gig, right? yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm just not interested in that. We we call it a fan band, okay? Not a tribute band, but like you know, we just want to play the songs well. And man, it's a thrill. You know, you you get your big wide open kick drum and your toms are wide open. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh man, I just Bonham's in my top three. If not my number one, For I sure. just love Bonham. So it, it it's one of it sounded like it was a conscious decision. Like this is we're gonna have fun with this, and I love that description. Fan Zeppelin band, you know, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, as opposed to a band that does a bunch of covers and then here's a couple Zeppelin songs thrown in there, you know. Yeah, it's pretty. The first couple gigs were exhausting because. Um, the arrangements are, are very asymmetrical. You don't realize until you pick them apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, the songs you thought you knew. Mm-hmm. We, we play cashmere, and one person would blow it every time because we're not, <laughs> you know, none of us are reading charts. 
And it took a good six shows before we all hit it right. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. You cover up your mistakes pretty quickly, but... Yeah. They sounded just like Zeppelin. <laughs> One person would blow every... <laughs> yeah, uh, they made plenty of mistakes themselves. <laughs> well, man, I appreciate you taking some time with us today and, and, and talking. It's, it's been really cool and inspiring, man, to, to mm-hmm. hear your story and the things that you've done. I really enjoyed meeting you. Thanks for having me. So. Yeah, man. Thanks to our friend Jimmy Allison for, for introducing us. And uh, Thanks, Jimmy. Yeah. And, you know, we'll... We'll be in touch for sure. Great. Well, nice to meet you, man. Uh, thanks for the co- thanks for the time and the conversation. I really appreciate I it. I appreciate it. Take care of yourself. Yeah. See you, man. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there you go, my conversation with drummer Noah Levy. It was really inspiring to hear somebody with uh, so much experience in and out of the studio uh, trying to wrap his head around all the technical and the engineering aspects that I think some of us are, are still struggling with at this stage of our home studio. He's got a really killer place, and and I think something we might not have touched on was his son, who's 20 now, is really uh, taken to this engineering and all the technical sides of things, and that's that's kind of inspiring to hear about this next generation that is growing up in the midst of this kind of technical revolution that uh, we're all trying to wrap our heads around. So that, that was fun. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with drummer Blair Sinta. If you don't know who Blair is, well, just come back and listen and find out. Um, Really great drummer, and uh, it should be a lot of fun. But for now, everyone, stay safe, stay sane. I hope you're doing well, and I will see you around. Bye-bye.